0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. As I am recording this today, this is episode number 52. And why that feels significant to me is because that means that for a whole year, I have been recording and releasing podcasts and therefore there is a whole year's worth of podcast information available to you to learn more about your journey with chronic fatigue, chronic illness and burnout recovery. So I've kind of felt like I should really do something special to mark this occasion and I was thinking about topics for a special episode but to be honest I just couldn't think of anything. So I just decided that, um, I would just mark the occasion with a little bit of chit chat at the beginning of this episode today. I am actually going to be talking about viral infections and chronic fatigue today, and I'll go into that in a moment. But before I do, I just want to say how much I have enjoyed producing this podcast over the past year. I have had so many people message me and say how much it's helping them, how valuable they've found the episodes. I've had a few people leave some reviews on iTunes and and that has been really great. So just really wanted to say thank you to you, the listener, for for being here, for downloading, for listening, uh, for sharing, for the messages I get um, about the podcast and also just for the people who have found me through the podcast and started following me on Instagram or even become a client. I'm grateful to all of you and as I've said I think in previous episodes is that this podcast is self-funded. I pay each week to have it edited for me and uploaded and all the kind of techie bits that I just don't have time always to do in my business. That's all paid out of my pocket Um, I don't have any ads or any sponsors so it is very much um, self-funded and it's done through my own passion and through my own desire to share this information with others and also to a certain degree a sense of responsibility to share what I know because I know that it can help other people. So just thank you for being here because you make it worthwhile. The messages I get make it worthwhile and your reviews also make it worthwhile. So if you haven't left a review, I think you can do that on iTunes or Spotify. It's obviously helpful if you give the podcast a rating, but if you do have the time and the energy, which I appreciate is precious, just to write a few words because it just means when other people are finding the podcast, they can see if it's something worthwhile for them to listen to. On that note, um, just a big thank you for, for being here, for listening, for the feedback that you've given me. And And that's really all I'm going to say for today because I want to get into the topic which is um, viral infections and chronic fatigue. And so in this episode today I'm going to be touching on three kind of categories of infections. Many people who experience chronic fatigue may have something which is either medically labeled or self-labeled as post-viral fatigue, so you got an infection or got a virus of some sort, and you've never felt the same since. We've also got people who maybe experience chronic fatigue with reactivation of a latent virus, so a virus that was previously experienced which is sitting latent inactive in the system but then becomes reactivated for some reason and then finally people with chronic fatigue are also prone to recurrent infections so infections that infections that are repeat repetitive over time they keep on repeating they're constantly getting ill And all of these things impact the fatigue recovery journey, and it's really important we have a framework to understand them and a framework on how we support the body to work with them, because it's not just about taking antivirals, it's about so much more than that. And definitely what I'm seeing with clients that I'm taking on board is that many have maybe done some viral testing or been told they have post-viral fatigue and they're loading up on antiviral herbs and therapies but that's like the cherry on top and um, there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done as well. Very often that groundwork isn't being done and then the person's taking all these antivirals they're not getting better or maybe in some cases they're feeling worse. So hopefully this episode will give a bit of a better picture about some of the mechanisms that are involved and about what you can do to support your body or what you can um, perhaps discuss with your practitioner if you've got somebody supporting your case. So we'll look a little bit at the difference between post-viral fatigue, latent virus activation and then recurring viruses and infections. Um, I'll also discuss testing. quite a controversial area to identify if a virus is something that's impacting your fatigue maybe you don't know yet or you've just become unwell or you're not sure if viruses have anything to do with your total clinical picture Um, and so you might be curious about testing what to ask your doctor for what to ask your practitioner for obviously it's really difficult to do this testing and decipher it all on your own so Please don't take this podcast or any of my podcast episodes as medical advice. It's always really important that you have someone supporting you through this journey so that you can stay safe. Um, And then finally, we'll talk about what do we do with all of this information. So you think that a virus is impacting your journey. You've done some testing. It looks like that's the case. What do we actually do with that information so that you can gain traction and move forward on your journey? So that's the structure for today. Where I will begin is just talking about the differences between post-viral fatigue, latent virus activation and then recurring infections. So if you have experienced a virus infection and you've never felt the same since, then you may have been medically labeled or self-labeled with post-viral fatigue. Now let's look at the case of a healthy person. A healthy person may experience an infection, the immune system does what it needs to do, they may feel very ill for a week or so, and then they get better. But when someone doesn't properly recover from an acute infection, they maybe start to have this chronic fatigue or post-viral fatigue syndrome, there are three possibilities. There could have been an injury at the site of the infection, which has caused inflammation in a specific tissue or a specific organ. An example of this from recent years, which will be very familiar to you, especially if you're someone who has long COVID, is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so just generally, the way that viruses work is that they can bind to cell surface receptors, so receptors on the surface of the cell, and this influences what tissues the virus can infiltrate and affect and once a virus is bound to a cell surface then the nuclear proteins of the virus are delivered into the cell because the cell doesn't have its own replication machinery but if it can hijack the replication machinery of a human cell that is how one of the strategies that the virus uses to create its own replication and in SARS-CoV-2 specifically the spike protein is able to bind to the cell receptors known as ACE2 receptors. And ACE2 receptors are found throughout the body on multiple different organs. And therefore these tissues are susceptible to temporary or permanent damage due to the viral infection. So as an example there are ACE2 receptors on the heart, there are ACE2 receptors on the lungs, there are ACE2 receptors on the brain the pancreas, the spleen, the liver and blood vessels, just to name a few. So for whatever reason, the spike protein can bind to the ACE2 receptors on these specific organs and that can be one of the mechanisms responsible for producing some of the symptoms of long COVID. For example, chest pain or brain fog or fatigue or sleep disturbances or changes in mood or neurological symptoms. Um, There's obviously many, many different symptoms associated with long COVID and that may be due to the specific organ that has been impacted through this mechanism by which this spike protein binds to the ACE2 receptors. So that is an example of how a viral infection can create specific damage to a specific organ or a specific system. But that's not the only possibility. Sometimes there can also be an activation of pre existing inflammation, which may cause systemic inflammation throughout the body. And so this is where if there was already some inflammatory situation or some inflammatory condition and then the virus comes along the immune system responds to the virus there's a large systemic inflammation as a consequence of the virus being in the body but this can then start to agitate or aggravate already existing pre-existing inflammation with that is pre-existing inflammation in the brain for example maybe you hit your head, you had a brain injury, you didn't really know that your brain was inflamed or it was inflamed to a manageable level. And then the viral infection comes in, there's a large systemic inflammation in the brain that turns on the glial cells in the brain the brain immune system essentially and now you start to experience cognitive symptoms and it wasn't necessarily the virus per se that did all of the damage. The body was already primed for damage and then the viral infection just tipped everything over the edge. That could be the same in the gut, that could be the same with joints, that could be um, also the case in autoimmunity. Which brings me to the third possibility which is There is also potential for the onset of autoimmunity post a viral infection. And this is known as pathogen induced autoimmunity. And this isn't necessarily going to happen to everyone, but it may happen to people who are already genetically susceptible. And then there's just, it's almost like a perfect storm leading towards autoimmunity and then the virus is the sort of nail in the coffin the final thing that tips everything over the edge. If you have had a viral infection and you've never felt the same since you want to consider which one of these three scenarios applies to you as this will shape how you support your body moving forward. If a viral infection triggered autoimmunity for you That's a very different support strategy compared to if the viral infection created a site-specific inflammation and now you're having problems with your brain or your lungs or a specific organ or a specific system. What's really important to highlight here is that in most cases there's no longer an active infection. The infection has been, it's gone, it's The immune system has tried to fight it and in doing so a large amount of damage or change has been created in the body. So in this type of situation it's not about taking herbs or antiviral supplements it's very much about establishing what are the mechanisms that are still active here. The immune system did its job, it came in, it tried to get rid of the infection but in doing so it created a lot of damage and there may be ongoing inflammation happening in the body what does the body need now so that it can resolve that inflammation and bring you back to a better state of health so that is the first example that is the first thing I wanted to cover which is post viral fatigue syndrome we must remember that the virus has been it's gone it's no longer active but what does the body need now to bring it back to a healthy balance The next thing I wanted to touch on is recurring latent infections. So recurring latent infections are infections that a healthy immune system can keep in check. When the immune system is working well, when it's doing its job, to the best of its abilities, these latent infections shouldn't be a problem. However, in moments of immune weakness and compromise, the host's immune system may no longer be able to keep the infection in check in its latent state and this is when the latent infection may opportunistically reactivate. classic example of this, which most people are probably familiar with, is the herpes zoster virus, which is responsible for varicella, also known as the chicken chickenpox. So many children have chickenpox. Children all over the world have chickenpox. Most children have chickenpox. But when this virus reactivates later in life, we call it shingles. And this is a classic example of we've had the virus, the chickenpox virus. The virus is latent in the system, but now for some reason, the immune system has become compromised and it re-manifests. It reactivates as shingles. So clinically latent viruses reactivate when someone is severely immunocompromised and there could be many reasons why somebody may be immunocompromised. It could be due to stress, it could be due to imbalances within the microbiome and then we have to think about why that might be. Diet, lifestyle, stress, drugs, alcohol, could be due to nutrient deficiencies. Poor intake of protein and fat, hormonal imbalances, inadequate sleep, chemical pollutants, or perhaps other infections which are wearing down the system, like parasites or mold probably being the big ones here. So when someone has a recurring latent infection, then it might be tempting to tackle the virus specifically to improve the symptoms. And this is where, you know, someone may take some herbs or antivirals because we're thinking kill, 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 get rid of that virus, kill the virus. But actually we need to think about the bigger picture, which is why is this person's immune system so compromised that it can't keep this virus in check? Because there's many people out there who've had chickenpox. there's many people out there who've had EBV or cytomegalovirus most people have had all of these viruses that's why when you test them most people will test positive for this these viruses but why did this person's immune system allow it to reactivate so that is the question we should be asking and here is an example of just what i see in clinical practice when i'm taking over cases is that there's been a lot of viral testing maybe for whatever reason, the person's immune system is looking compromised. You know, there's a sign that maybe there is some ongoing infection. And then the individual has done loads and loads of testing. It's like, let's find out what this infection is. Is it EBV? Is it herpes zoster? Is it cytomegalovirus? You know, what is the virus? What is the thing that is affecting this person's immune system? And actually, Knowing exactly what it is when we're looking at viruses I don't actually think that clinically that's very useful. Perhaps it could be but if we know it's probably a virus we don't necessarily need to determine which one. The question we want to be asking the most powerful question is what does this immune system need? Who is the person in front of me? How are they presenting? How are their stress levels? Do they have nutrient deficiencies? What's their protein and fat intake like? Are they sleeping? Do they have other infections like parasites and mold? I do think it's important to rule those ones out. But what are the contributing factors to this person's immune function? And then how do we support the person's immune function instead of going on a witch hunt for a virus? So that hopefully um, helps you understand the latent viruses a little bit better. Then the final category is just recurrent viral infections which are essentially just repeated infections. Um, This is somebody who's just falling ill all the time and obviously when we're trying to recover from chronic fatigue, but then we're constantly having these setbacks because we're getting knocked back by a virus, it's really difficult for us to get traction on moving forward. So these viral infections could just be like the flu. It could be recurrent COVID infections, rhinovirus, which is the common cold, or sinusitis or bronchitis, adenovirus, which is conjunctivitis or upper respiratory infections, bronchitis, the norovirus, stomach flu, rotavirus, diarrhea, parainfluenza virus, which is sinusitis, and then gastroenteritis or otitis media. So all of these different infections, maybe you're getting some of them, maybe you're getting the same one again and again, maybe you're experiencing all of these and just rotating between the two, or rotating between all of them. So whatever is going on, Please know it's absolutely okay to get ill from time to time. Most people, even healthy people, get infections. And especially if you're a mum and you've got little ones and their immune systems are developing and they're bringing a lot of things home from school or daycare, then you probably are going to be getting a few more you know, niggles and colds um, than somebody else. But however, when this is constant and it's preventing you from moving forward with your health you see it as the biggest barrier in your journey then again we must consider the state of the immune system and specifically again asking those questions about why is this immune system compromised is it stress is it nutrient deficiencies? Is it issues with the microbiome? Is there enough protein in the diet? Are there enough fats in the diet? So we want to start to ask these questions instead of just thinking about how do I kill the virus? We want to ask how do I improve my resilience and how do I improve the how robust my immune system is. So hopefully that helps you now to understand the the different kind of categories of viral infections. Remember At the end of the day, what we're really looking to do is to support the immune system and resolve inflammation or or help it to resolve inflammation. And then your antiviral therapy, that's like the cherry on the top. It is not the primary support strategy. But before we get to support, we want to understand how we would maybe know if this is an issue for us. And so here I would like to cover testing. Testing can be a little bit tricky and this is where I think it's really important that you work with a practitioner who understands all of this, who understands the testing, who understands how to interpret the testing so you can get the best possible care and support. The first thing I'll say is that an acute infection can, but not always, be highlighted in a full blood count. So a full blood count is a standard panel. Your regular GP should be able to run that for you or you can use a private testing company if you don't want to go through your GP. I usually refer my clients to Medichecks but there are many different companies out there. So the full blood count is something that I ask all of my clients to do at the very beginning of our journey together. It's just a really nice screening tool for the most part Um, But there are certain markers in there that can highlight the possibility of infection. So for example, increased white blood cells and increased lymphocytes can highlight an acute infection. But if that infection has become chronic, we may see a low white blood cell count and increased neutrophils. So just to repeat that again, increased white blood cells for acute infection, low white blood cells for a chronic infection. And then also in a chronic infection, we may see increased neutrophils, suppressed lymphocytes, but not always. So this is just generally speaking. So because infections don't always show up in the complete blood count, you can do a little bit more advanced testing. Here you want to be looking at the complement proteins, T cells, B cells and natural killer cells. So the best test for this is to use the Cyrex Laboratories lymphocyte map. I think it is only currently available in the US. I'm hoping they're going to bring it to the UK soon. But if you are UK based, then the next best possible option is through Almond Labs, which is based in Germany. However, I do see these labs from clients who have previously done them but personally I find these tests a bit of a hassle and I seldom ever actually end up running any of them with my clients. I do tend to rely on the complete blood count quite heavily and then what I do like to do is take a detailed client health history and look at their current symptoms. So that's usually where I like to start and I feel for the most part I can get a lot of information from a full blood count, history and symptoms to start to make some clinical decisions. It's not often I start to go into the more advanced labs because to a certain extent, I don't feel that it's necessary. I'm going to do everything I can to support this person's immune system. I don't need to know that I need to do that. I just make the decision that that's what we're going to do. But I digress. As we are talking about testing I thought it's really important to touch on antibodies and here we're talking about IgG and IgM antibodies and so if you're experiencing some sort of chronic fatigue that may be be related to some sort of infection you may have had antibodies tested and it's really important to distinguish that IgG antibodies will tell you that you had a specific infection. So for example, if you show up with IgG antibodies to Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, that will tell you that you've had Epstein-Barr virus at some point in your life. Um, If you show up with IgG antibodies to cytomegalovirus, that will tell you that you've had cytomegalovirus at some point in your life. Having IgG antibodies isn't particularly helpful It just says you had this virus once upon a time. And it's noteworthy that 53% of the population will have antibodies to the herpes simplex virus, 98% of the population will have antibodies to herpes zoster, chickenpox, and 90% of the population will test positive for Epstein-Barr virus. So just knowing that once upon a time, you, you had a virus, is not really enough information or it's not really um, that useful to know in terms of making clinical decisions or in terms of understanding is this a problem for you now. However, if you test positive for IgM antibodies, that can suggest the reactivation of a latent virus. So IgG just says that you had this virus once upon a time. IGM suggests this virus has been reactivated and therefore we know if a virus has been reactivated or if it's active we want to support the immune system. And so this is where I would say that yes maybe this testing could be helpful but for the most part when I'm working with someone on their fatigue recovery irrespective of whether or not they have a viral load. I'm probably going to be doing all the things that would support their immune system anyway so do I need to put this person through rigorous testing and the hassle of blood draws and international shipping and all those things just to do the same things I would probably do if we didn't have the test results. Obviously every case is different and there are situations where I may want to dig deeper and I may want to do more testing. There's nuance to every case and chronic illness is complex. But for the most part, I don't do a lot of this viral testing in my practice. I do work with it because clients come to me from other practitioners where it's already been done, but it's not something that I advocate for um, as a priority in my practice. Just in terms of what I'm doing a lot of at the moment, the thing I'm doing the most is stool testing because what's going on in the gut can be a huge influential factor on what's happening with the immune system. Anyway, little tangent there, but just one more thing to mention. In the full blood count, you will get um, monocytes, which is one of the markers, and um, an elevation in monocytes greater than 7% can indicate a reactivation of the herpes virus. So again, we don't necessarily have to do the IgM antibodies, but if we are seeing elevated monocytes, we want to think, okay, there's something going on here. It's also important to note that monocytes can be elevated for other reasons. So usually it's an elevation in monocytes in conjunction with fever, fatigue, or throat and muscle aches. So we've talked about the different types of infections and we've talked about testing. What we haven't talked about yet is autoimmunity because one of the three possibilities that I mentioned if you've had a virus and you've never felt the same since is the activation of autoimmunity due to the viral infection. In some cases, we may want to consider testing for autoimmunity. And the most accessible marker for autoimmunity is antinuclear antibodies, ANA. And this is something that a lot, lot of doctors will do. However, it is important to note that although ANA may help to facilitate a diagnosis of some autoimmune conditions, it may not be able to identify and rule out all types of autoimmunity. So testing negative for ANA does not necessarily rule autoimmunity out. The test that I like to use for autoimmunity is the Cyrex RA5 which is a multiple autoimmune reactivity screen. It tests for 24 different protein targets, and therefore it's the most comprehensive picture of autoimmune potential. It's not 100%, there may be some other things that get missed in this test, but it's pretty comprehensive. It is worth noting that the test retails at 671 US dollars and it does have to be arranged through a qualified practitioner. So here in the UK that's a functional nutritional therapist or a functional medicine doctor. So not everybody is necessarily going to have 671 US dollars to access this type of testing. However, I would say that if autoimmunity is on the cards, this is worth saving up for. Fortunately, there's no autoimmunity in my family. Um, it's, I mean, never say never, but I just don't think that, that I'm somebody who holds those genetic predispositions. But I've always said through learning about the Cyrex testing that if I was, if I, if I was somebody who was susceptible to autoimmunity i would be saving up for and doing every single one of the cyrex panels maybe you know across a decade but i would want to test absolutely everything because the value of the information that you can get in terms of managing your health is it's invaluable so if you have got some like weird and wacky symptoms and you've tried loads of things and nothing is helping you and you haven't really conclusively ruled out autoimmunity i think it would be um, something really great to do i appreciate it's not very easily accessible and you know that is unfortunately there's nothing i can do to change that it is the system that we live in where healthcare is just really expensive but getting to the bottom of it um, could be something that really helps you and helps your case now that we've addressed testing, the next really important thing or most important thing is what do we do with all of this information? We we've identified it's either like post viral fatigue or it's a recurring latent infection or just recurrent infections. We've done the testing. We kind of know where we're at with things, but what do we do now? And so, here and I've touched on this a few times already is that um, just talking about this idea that antiviral therapies are commonly recommended as part of a fatigue recovery support plan but they are the cherry on top therefore we want to consider in the case of a post-viral fatigue the infection may be long gone and therefore we may need to consider what the body needs support with now what organ system has been impacted What is the mechanism of the impact? And has there been some autoimmunity which has been induced? If that, you know, when we're thinking about all of these things, antiviral therapy is not going to be very helpful in this case. When we've got recurrent infections or latent infections which have been reactivated, then the host is most likely going to be immune compromised. And therefore we need a well-rounded immune support plan With antivirals as the cherry on the top. So where I'll go into with this is to talk about how we support those who are immune compromised and I've kind of touched on these already and really how we support somebody who is immune compromised is how I would go about supporting anybody who walks through my door who has chronic fatigue whether I know they have immune compromise or not Actually the strategies are all the same and I've touched on this in previous podcasts is often we think that this is a chronic illness, I must be really really ill and therefore I must need really really complicated interventions and sophisticated supplement plans and sophisticated testing and that is really not the case. Fatigue recovery is built on basic foundations and these basic foundations do not have to be sophisticated or fancy or um, very expensive. So the basic foundations are, very, very first one is sleep. You must be sleeping. And I appreciate that that is easier said than done. And sometimes there's a whole network of things we need to address to actually get someone sleeping and it goes beyond the scope of this particular podcast episode to talk about all of those things but if I've got a client who's not sleeping we will do everything to get them to sleep Um, and that might be looking at their blood sugar looking at their morning light exposure, looking at their nervous system, looking at things like histamine. There's so many different things that could impact sleep, but we we need to get somebody who is immune compromised sleeping. So I appreciate it's easier said than done, but we need to get people sleeping. The next thing is we need to stabilize blood sugar. When your blood sugar is going too high or too low, um, that's not going to be good for your health, that's not going to be good for your immune system. And again, I've got a whole episode on blood sugar, so you can listen to that. I've also talked about the ketogenic diet, so you can listen to that. Um, some people will need to go ketogenic, sometimes it's the only thing that will stabilize their blood sugar. And most people don't like to hear that because most people like to eat carbohydrate, but it was something I had to do in my own journey. There was nothing except going ketogenic that would help to stabilize my blood sugar. And here on the flip side of that, I will say as well that sometimes I have clients with stable blood sugar but they still need to go ketogenic for the anti-inflammatory benefits on the brain. So just because your blood sugar is stable with the current diet that you're on, doesn't mean that your diet has been optimized for your specific case. So it's worth highlighting that as well. So good sleep, stable blood sugar, which always helps with good sleep. And then macronutrition. So we need adequate protein All these immune molecules that I've been talking about, your antibodies, your T-cells, your B-cells, they're made from protein. So if you're immune compromised, you may test low for those things. And therefore, if you're not eating enough protein, how are you going to make those immune molecules, which are going to be important for the robustness of your immune system? So ideal protein intake is one gram per pound of ideal body weight. Just for maths, if if you're 100 pounds, that means you should be eating 100 grams of protein a day. That doesn't mean if you have a portion of chicken which weighs 100 grams, you're done for the day. 100 grams of chicken is 20 grams of protein. So that means you would need to eat 500 grams of chicken to meet your protein requirements. Now, obviously 500 grams of chicken can sound a little bit shocking for some people, I come from a little bit of a bodybuilding background, so for me it's not shocking at all, but I know from the conversations I have with clients, they'll fall off their chair if I tell them to have 500 grams of chicken. So what's really important to understand is you can get your protein from different food sources, you can use protein powders to supplement your protein intake, but it probably will involve eating a decent amount of meat or fish, Um you can obviously use, you know, nuts and seeds, beans and pulses, but we have to be aware, especially if we're looking at beans and pulses and kind of more vegetable based protein sources, that there's going to be a lot of carbohydrate with those, which can be a problem if you're also somebody who needs to be on a ketogenic diet. So what I say to my clients is it's progress, not perfection. You don't have to get there overnight, but over weeks and months, we want to be building up your protein intake and getting it where we need to go. The next part of macronutrition is essential fatty acids. Essential fatty acids also make immune molecules especially those that help to complete the immune response. So when there has been a big inflammatory immune response to fight some sort of infection if we don't have the essential fatty acids to then turn off the immune response then it can perpetuate and create systemic inflammation. So we need good quality fats in the diet, specifically omega-3 from oily fish or algae, flaxseed, chia seeds, walnuts, leafy greens. But I'm seeing a lot of my clients on low-protein, low-fat diets, and that is just not going to fly when we're looking at somebody who is immune-compromised. Then we can, once we've got those macronutrients in place, we've got the stable blood sugar, we're sleeping, then we can drill down into micronutrition So specifically here for the immune system, it's vitamins A, D, E, and K, iron, copper, zinc, B vitamins, and vitamin C. So I really like to use the NutriVal, which is a blood and urine test by Genova Diagnostic. It is another pricey one, but if that's out of your budget, we can get a little bit of information about vitamin B from a full blood count, We can get a little bit of information about iron and vitamin D from your regular doctor's test and we can look at just food sources of these nutrients and just making sure that um, there's enough coming into the body but then we also need to think about digestion because we know that the microbiome is really important in terms of how it sends signals to the immune system and if digestion is compromised We can be eating all this beautiful protein and all this beautiful fat and taking these lovely nutritional supplements. But if we can't digest, absorb and assimilate them, that's going to be an issue. And so this is one of the reasons why the stool test is one of the tests I recommend the most for clients. Because we can get more information about what's going on in the gut. We can get more information about how we are possibly digesting, absorbing our nutrients and our food. Um, and that's a big part of restoring the health of the immune system as well. Then two other things which I would also put on the basics list would be optimal movement. Obviously exercise is a tricky one when it comes to chronic fatigue. I've got this post on Instagram at the moment um, which is a summary of a blog I wrote on how to exercise if you have chronic fatigue. And I get so many haters on that post saying, you shouldn't exercise if you've got fatigue, you're harming people. It's very stressful actually getting um, all these nasty comments all the time on my social media. But um, at the end of the day, you need to move your body. It doesn't mean it has to be exercise. But what, wherever you are in your journey, whatever your capacity is, you've got to find some way to move. Um, and that's just not something that I made up. And that's just not something from, you know, my own personal experience that I think is, is validated. It's um, really coming from, you know, my mentors, some people who are doing the most incredible work in the world in this field, um, who say you need to move and it's going to be hard and you're going to probably do too much and it's going to be trial and error to find out what your unique capacity is but you need to move and I have various resources on that there's a podcast on how to exercise with chronic fatigue and how to increase your exercise tolerance with chronic fatigue so you can listen to those and then the final one is supporting your nervous system. The nervous system and the immune system are so closely linked. And when the immune system has been active for a really long period of time, or sorry, when the nervous system has been really hyperactive for a really long period of time, that can lead to immune suppression or changes in immune function. So again, the nervous system is such a big topic. I do have my getting to know the nervous system workshop, which you can um, watch, I do have the nervous system episode of this podcast that you can listen to there's a few other episodes where I touch on the nervous system and of course I have my nurturing resilience group program which you can do live or self-study to get the basics of your nervous system down. So although I call these basics is actually a lot all baked into the cake shall I say when addressing all of these things But sometimes I'll see clients who are taking lists and lists of supplements and they're not getting better and because they haven't addressed these things, they're not eating enough protein, they're not eating enough fat, they're not sleeping, they don't have any nervous system self-care and yet they're kind of like all over the place taking all these supplements, either feeling worse or just not getting better or the infections keep on coming back and We kind of just want to make sure that these things are in place and this could be six months work and so when I'm working one-on-one with clients for six months all these basic things that I've mentioned getting all of them optimized is sometimes the bulk of the journey and then the other stuff is just the fancy stuff on top but then additionally once those foundations are in place we could then dig a little bit deeper into adrenal function or sex hormones or look at Toxin exposure, look at other infections that may be going on, like parasites and mold are big ones. Um, overtraining. And overtraining, you know, whenever I say overtraining in my blogs, I always just think, well, there's probably nobody with chronic fatigue who thinks that they're overtraining, but overtraining is relative to the individual. So if you're exercising and you're crashing you're overtraining even if your exercise is just getting up and walking around the block. So overtraining still applies even if you have chronic fatigue. Smoking due to the depletion of antioxidants, drugs and alcohol due to the impact they have on the brain and our antioxidant reserves and um, eating disorders because then obviously there will be nutritional deficiencies. Personally I don't work with anybody with eating disorders. I think you need to work with someone who specializes in that area. But if you are somebody who is very immune compromised, you do have these recurrent infections or reactivation of infections and you have an eating disorder, the priority is to address the eating disorder so that you can nourish yourself and nourish your immune system. So once we've got all of that done, then we can, as I said, put some herbs in on top as that like extra cherry on top to support the immune system as well. So here I thought I would just share some herbs which are supportive for natural killer cells and T cells and that's astragalus, echinacea, lemon balm and beta-glucans. And then foods or herbs which are supportive for B cells are grapeseed extract, adequate protein, green tea, pine bark extract and resveratrol. So those are just a few cherry on the top nutrients for you. now. Where I'd like to finish up here is if you've been listening to this podcast and you suspect you have autoimmunity or you already had a known autoimmune condition, for example, a lot of people have Hashimoto's thyroiditis and you had some autoimmune condition, then you had a viral infection and then you kind of never felt better since it is possible that you could have developed a second autoimmune condition following the virus because we know that once somebody already has an autoimmune condition they have a high chance of developing another autoimmune condition. So if your symptoms are due to infection-induced autoimmunity The case does become a lot more complex and it goes beyond the scope of today's episode to go into detail on all of this, but this is kind of just like a checklist of things that you may want to consider. So first of all, you want to identify if there is some autoimmunity and that's the Cyrex RA5. Then you want to develop, um, get an understanding of what stage that autoimmunity is. So we have silent, we have autoimmune reactivity, and then we have disease. So silent is, it's just there, it's in the background, you're not really symptomatic, which if you're feeling worse since the viral infection is probably not you. So then we need to think, is this just something that's reacting? Is it like a flare and then it normalizes and a flare and then it normalizes, or in the case of disease, there's tissue destruction. So then once we've identified that, then we want to think about what are the triggers. So, do I feel worse when I don't sleep? Do I feel worse when I exercise? Do I feel worse when I'm stressed at work or in my relationships? So we want to start to manage lifestyle triggers. Then we want to identify protein triggers. So this is where people may react to gluten or dairy or nightshades or lectins or gluten cross-reactive foods or even insulin surges, which is why blood sugar is important. And so this is where we can use elimination diets to kind of, you know, you cut out these foods, you see if you feel better, or you can also use Cyrex testing to get a little bit more data. They have food-specific panels as well. There can also be chemical triggers. There can also be um, pathogen triggers, so viruses, bacteria, mold. Here is where Testing can be helpful to dig a bit deeper into this. And this is where Cyrex has panels for these specific things, chemicals and pathogens. And that's why I said if I was someone with an autoimmune condition, I would be working my way through the Cyrex tests because there's so many different things that we can test for. And just kind of ruling each one out one at a time in your own time, according to your budget, can be very, very useful. Then we also have to think about supporting the immune system because when somebody has autoimmunity they've lost their immune tolerance so here we need to think about why did the immune system lose tolerance and what can we do now to help the immune system become more tolerant and there's lots of different things we can do here but a big one is going to be addressing digestive health and then we also need to just work or consider you as an individual, what helps you to manage and recover from your flares. And for a lot of people, it's probably going to be things like good sleep, good diet, good amounts of exercise, healthy relationships, and lots and lots and lots and lots of nervous system support. So it's a complicated topic. But my goal for today was to make something that's complicated, actually simple. I think, you know, there's so much misinformation or it's hard to find good information when you are somebody who is experiencing a chronic illness like chronic fatigue syndrome and i think then there can be this like everything is a mystery everything sounds really complicated um and again you know because you're so sick and the doctors can't help you there must be these like magical things that you just don't know about that will help and That's actually not the case at all. What I really would love you to take away from this episode is that it comes back to basic foundations again and again and again and again. And when I'm working with clients, for the most part, even when they have worked with other practitioners and they're not getting results, they're just still not doing the basics properly. And... I think I've shared already, you know, like one of my clients said, I can't believe I'm paying you all this money to tell me to like sleep and eat well. And I'm like, yes, but these are the things you need to do. Um, And sometimes we need that reminder. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Um, If you have enjoyed it or you found it useful as always, please share through, you know, your social media channels with your chronic illness community there's anybody you think may benefit from this episode I really appreciate if you could share it with them and then just once again thank you for being here thank you for listening thank you for all the feedback and reviews and if you haven't left a review maybe now's a good day to leave one and I will see you in the next episode